Welcome to Directionally Correct, the Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Mom. Good. When's the last time, I, I know when I saw you last in person, I think we chatted since then, but I, I saw you at the last Chicago PSYOP. When's the last time you and Scott saw each other? I saw we, Scott in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, she was there. She mm-hmm. had like her whole entourage around, everyone following Stephanie around. <laughs> There was no entourage, but it was fun to see you in person. Yeah, I think absolutely. I saw Tillman and everyone there too. So, are you, Stephanie, are you speaking at the Austin meetup coming up? Yes. Yeah. I don't know what or how we're speaking, but I know you and I are both listed as speakers. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, and, and I, I, hopefully the listeners hear this, but because I just joined Orgnostic as their VP of people analytics and product evangelist. So uh, I don't know if any of our listeners are down in the Austin area, but both Stephanie and I will be at the Pafal Connect event. I think it's October 26. You can find it on uh, yeah. on LinkedIn. So if, you, if you're shameless promotion here. Yeah. Well, if you're not already <laughs> bored by hearing us talk today, you could hear us talk more later on. Uh, <laughs> right. Is it is it a free maybe event? Be I think it's free. No, I don't think so. Oh. All right, maybe it's not free. I don't know. Dollars, at least in the Palfar app, I think it shows it's costing. But it might okay. be free. It might be free. I mean, beer always costs money, or whatever you buy. So we'll see. Well, maybe I'll come um, down there. Yeah, that was a good well, time. We should. Yeah. Yes. Oh, are you still gonna be around then, Scott? Uh, I don't know. You got the big bucks now. Just fly me in. <laughs> oh shush! Whatever, man. No, I know That's Austin's fair. your old stomping ground, so if you did come, that would be amazing. Oh, absolutely. I I, uh, I need some brisket in my life. I need some tacos, some people analytics talk, <laughs> the whole bit. I need some people I, analytics I'm, tacos. I'm vegan, so none of that sounds appetizing. <laughs> <laughs> people analytics tacos. <laughs> that's, that's my cup of tea. Well, Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. Um, let me if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell the audience a little bit about you real quick and, and then we can kind of hit, hit the ground running. So Dr. Stephanie Murphy, uh, she's currently the head of people insights and assessments at Dell technologies. Uh, I think kind of the big claim to fame there is she runs Dell's employee engagement survey, but she also serves on several boards and committees of organizations, such as the HR exchange network, it survey group and, uh, PSYOP as well. Um, she's recently been recognized by OnCon Icon Awards as one of the top 10 data and analytics professionals and Whoa. by Diver- Diversity MBA <laughs> as one of the top 100 under 50 executive and emerging leaders, which is pretty freaking cool. And I believe you also teach at uh, University of Texas in their, their yeah. business school, uh, holds a BS from UNO in New Orleans back in Louisiana, and yeah. then uh, a, a PhD and master's from in IO psychology from Louisiana Tech. So thank you for joining us today, Stephanie. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, were, so, were you, did both of you uh, like overlap while you were at Law Tech? Like, yeah, yes, Stephanie was in the cohort behind me, I believe. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. I think both so, of you were gone by the time I got there. Thank goodness. I think I was Gosh. there for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I, w- I would see you too, like come in and like uh, defending your dissertation. Dissertation work, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah, there. I'm in. I'm in the minority here, and I would love to hear you guys' perspective on this. 
I think a dissertation defense is like the funnest thing ever. And I, nobody says this, but it's like, it's like the pinnacle of your academic career and you get a chance to really show your stuff for the first time. So if you're like a person who likes to challenge, like I've been watching the Michael Jordan uh, documentary, The Last Dance again, which is getting me so mm-hmm. pumped up, by the way. And, you know, taking the final shot of the game with like two <laughs> seconds left on the clock. That's like what a dissertation defense is in the academic context. I don't know. What, what do you guys feel about this? I would strongly disagree on the five-point scale. Um, <laughs> I had a feeling you would. <laughs> I think I was full of anxiety. I actually invited my brother to my defense so that he would be in the audience and I had like a friendly face to look at while I defended. You yeah. remember, I know your brother, Stephanie. Uh, you, you, uh-huh. I'm not allowed to hang out with your brother anymore because of no. the too many good times we had <laughs> when uh, I did hang out with You've him. You've been banned. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm in Stephanie's camp here. You were definitely in the minority on this is a fun event to be had. Um, it's it's stressful. Just, just from the perspective of like, they could just wreck your shit and say no. Like, it, it, it mm-hmm. probably wouldn't come to that if you've like done your due diligence clearly and your committee is really good. But I, I essentially had my entire presentation memorized. I, I could have recited it in my sleep. Well, well I think we know who the Michael right. Jordan on this call is oh. now then. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, the funny thing is, and I, I won't mention their name, but I accidentally almost wrecked somebody else's dissertation defense by just asking what I thought was like a benign question. And they like oh. couldn't answer it. Oh, and so they had do to do it. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm a big jerk. And I didn't even realize it. <laughs> Like every question you ask, like adds about like four to six hours to someone's life. Like (laughs) this is going to take two days to do because Daniel Cole sat there and asked me about gender or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, I know we kind of covered your bio a little bit, but is there anything about your either work history or academic history or your, you know, outside of work history in kind of the people analytics or IO psychology space that you'd like to make sure the audience is aware of? Yeah, yeah, I think, I, I guess I'm a little bit different where I haven't spent a whole lot of time uh, bouncing around in different companies. I kind of found my perfect place and stayed there. Um, but I will start from the beginning. Like I started off as uh, an undergrad as an actually a computer science major. Uh, I started college really, 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 really early. I was 16 and at that what? age you have no idea what you're doing yes i know <laughs> that's amazing so, uh, yeah it was it was very interesting um but psych 101 was one of my electives at the time and i just kind of immediately fell in love with just learning about why people behave the way that they do and like in the first month of class i ended up getting like the highest grade on one of the tests and i was like little 16 year old b was like oh i beat all these older folks and was super excited so i was like all right i'm going to switch my major so i switched from computer science to psychology but like quickly, as, as I realized I was really happy about psychology, when I graduated, I realized there was not much to do with a bachelor's in psychology. <laughs> and yeah. so I did probably the most like unscientific thing ever. And I Googled high-paying psychology job um, and IO psychology came up. So <laughs> that's kind of how I got into IO psych. And I learned more about it and learned more about how perfect it was in terms of being able to, what better way to study people when you can study them in the place that we spend most of our time at work. So, and as you know, Cole, I was a, a teen mom, so I had my son in undergrad. So I packed up my one-year-old and headed off to tech to, to study IO. 
Do you like in like college now or something? Jeez, I feel like I knew him like forever ago when he was a kid. <laughs> he's very old. He's thirteen now. <laughs> he's oh my gosh! Okay. So I, I, th- yeah, I think you actually yeah, selected one. You you selected the career in I O like a good I O would. Like you had your criterion measure, and you went out. You did the research. That's fair. That's fair. You made the best choice. Opportunity. Right. Right. That's true. Yeah. But then I, I, I saw the, the internship pop up on the sign up job board at Dell. Um, met the people here and I interviewed and kind of fell in love with the company and the people and the rest is history. Still here. <laughs> well, it looks like Dell fell in love with you too, which is awesome. Yeah, no well, doubt. Since since you have been there, I think this is kind of an interesting perspective to take because it it sounds like you do own some kind of like the listening aspects and survey aspects of the work there. How has that evolved over that period of time? I mean, you've been there, I don't know, six, seven something years. Um, how yeah, has that evolved nine. in kind of external to Dell? Because I feel like it's evolved a lot in the marketplace of things. But what about at Dell in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's been interesting. And I would love to hear you all's perspective on this. But I actually didn't realize until like recent years that I was doing people analytics. I think so to your point, I started off with the employee listening survey and I would do some assessment validations here and there. I would do some kind of research studies on topics, but it wasn't until like the past two years where we actually formalized our listening strategy. How are we going to go to team members? When were we going to do it in a more strategic way? And then we formalized our assessment strategy. What assessments are we going to use? Are we going to design them? How are we going to go get vendors? And then we formalized our research strategy. What are we going to bring internally or how are we going to get that to team members and leaders? And so my team now has this more like strategic of assessment, research, and listening, which I think before we were doing the work, I think over the last couple of years, we've just finally formalized it. Um, but we weren't doing dashboards. We weren't doing data science. We still aren't doing kind of reporting and all of those different things. And we're not doing the business kind of analytics support either. That all sits on another team. So we have kind of three analytics teams. So my team is kind of the dashboard data science team, and then there's the business analytics support. The three of us connect on a regular basis, and we stay aligned. Um, But for the longest, I thought those teams are people analytics, and we were more like researchers and IOs. Um, But I think um, because we weren't doing Tableau, we weren't doing SQL, and we kind Mm -hmm. of love our SPSS, so we didn't feel like people (laughs) analytics. Uh, but I think over, you know, the last years of talking to other experts like yourselves, like I feel like I started to realize, you know, people data of any kind, shaping decisions, solving business problems and, and solutioning is people analytics. And so I think it's been interesting to see the different structures that, at other companies and what people actually view as people analytics. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's clear that it's not about the tools that you use, be it Tableau or SPSS, because, I mean, you can make the same dumb decisions, whether you're using Python or you're using Excel. And, like, you're really hitting on, like, something that's, uh, it's been, like, a continuing topic of conversation uh, between Cole and I. It's like, what is people analytics? It's, 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 it's essentially a spectrum, and there's, like, no real beginning or end. It's really about informing decisions if you want to like boil it down to its core point um how is this implemented at dell and uh, how do you how do you yeah. view your role in it yeah so a lot of our outputs are powerpoint <laughs> and so it's like well you know we do all the analytics and the stuff on the back end in terms of 
bringing in the external research, looking at the HR data, looking at the listening data, merging it together. But Dell is a very PowerPoint culture. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, our leaders weren't sent a PowerPoint slide served up to them with like, here's the key findings and here's the results. Um, like I mentioned, we do have that dashboard team that does have more Tableau dashboards, but that's more geared towards HR. What our leaders mostly get is more so PowerPoint and kind of slides of here's what we found, here's interesting research that might help them in their decision. Like we do what we call tip sheets, which is kind of just like tips on key topics. Like we did one recently with like four ways to build connection in a hybrid world. And then we'll push that out to our leaders to help them. And it's science and data and analytics behind it. But all they see is those kind of four tips in a summarized way that allows them to go take action. That's fantastic from like a, like a storytelling point of view, like putting the, together a PowerPoint that's like really powerful and like gets the message across to folk. Do you mind if I come back to this point about like, what is people analytics for a second? Yeah. Just because, um, so I went to the, one of the biggest uh, HR conferences called HR Tech a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. And one of the new hot things that you hear, which every, it seemed like every company was calling themselves now was a talent intelligence company, right? And so recently this past week, I've been seeing quite a few like online debates and discussions about like, does people analytics own talent intelligence? Does talent intelligence own the future of people analytics? And and I hear all these definitions, like some of these talent intelligence companies are like true like economic indicators, tools. Some of them are like labor market tools. Some of them are skills tools. And like, it was just like companies like rebranding what they've been doing for like 20 years is now it's talent <laughs> intelligence. And so I, I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts about this? Um, I, I think it is all the same thing with, you know, just being called a different, it's like, what do they call Old it? The line, narcissi- new bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, like the mm-hmm. narcissism of small differences, right. Where you're almost identical, but we're like, so narcissistic. We're like, Oh, we're different and better. It's like, <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's the case. Well, yeah, like, totally agree. Uh, yeah. Uh, on, one, on one hand, it, it sounds like, um, really big brothery, like, what would you would you call it something intelligence people intelligence talent intelligence Ta- talent intelligence like where we're trying to get away from this creepy factor and it's just so hard to do but on the other hand like yes it's it's the exact same thing we've been doing to drive insights for folks can say i do think calling it talent intelligence does make it seem like like the fbi is watching you it does like, like cia kind of a little eerie mm-hmm. no i've never heard this term well, it's everywhere now apparently so you better get on board, Scott, or you're going to be left behind. I'm old school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, speaking of that, so, so Stephanie, you kind of loosely discussed what the framework of what people analytics looks like at Dell. And so I think you mentioned there were three teams and that you kind of partnered together. But like, what are the disciplines within those teams? Like, and do they have like a different focus area? Like, where do you partner? Where do you intentionally not partner? Um, and can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's a very, very diverse team in terms of background. So we do have some folks that are data science in nature, um, some that are HR generalists. They've gone through like our HR rotation program and they've gone on to just kind of learn that they know more about the business and they know more about you know how Dell works. They make really good analysts. Um, so and then we've got our IOs and then that's mostly on my team, all the IOs that 
Um, so it's kind of, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I would say most of our data scientists sit in one team. Most of our kind of those HR rotational graduates that I talk about sit on another team. And then also the, um, the IOs on mine. And I think a lot, we all kind of partner together on so many different things. So I might be users of some of the dashboards. My team might be users of some of those dashboards created in one team. But then we might, you know, produce some listening data that's helpful for them to put inside their dashboards. And then the other team that's like functioning and supporting the business, often, you know, we provide them information that's helpful to transfer into the business. And so it's kind of a funnel back and forth between the three of us of, you know, the dashboards, the automation, my team with the insights, and then the business analysts that bring those insights to the business. One of the one of the uh, topics that's kind of ongoing, it's like very top of mind right now, is this idea of bringing people back to the office. And of course, Dell is a massive company, and uh, at some point, folks are either going to have to come to the office, never come to the office, or some sort of hybrid solution. How is your team dealing with employee sentiment from this perspective? So, fun fact. Dell has been hybrid for about 13 years. Oh, okay. So even before the pandemic, um, we, I, I was remote. I think I moved to Austin and I worked in the office here based in Round Rock for maybe a year. And then I went fully remote afterwards. So I've been remote for the last seven years. Um, so Dell has always had a really flexible culture. Our goal was actually to get to where half of our team members were working remotely by 2020, the pandemic push this to our goal um so we've got a lot <laughs> goal of achieved yes <laughs> right <laughs> right when, time, time to get a promotion um, right like we achieved exactly, our goal exactly yeah but it was really i think our infrastructure and our culture was already set up for hybrid work because we already had that culture in place and so we ended up when the pandemic hit we got all of our team members remote over a weekend um it was really quick really simple and um it's been been really cool to see like how having that foundation has allowed us to adjust um, very quickly to hybrid work and I think the biggest thing is like what do you mean by hybrid work I think when we say hybrid work often we think of coming to the office two days a week but at Dell when we say hybrid work we mean I have a team that might have two people that are remote two people that are in the office and two people that might be coming in and out uh, as they please it doesn't mean that everyone is coming in two days a week for us. What we mean is we give our team members the flexibility to work as they want, as however they want, because we believe work as an output. So wherever you're working, you don't care as long as you're getting your work done. Um, so it's been interesting to kind of look at the, the external research and the trends, and we've been yeah. doing what we call Mythbusters, um, and using data and science to really drive like what our team members are saying at Dell to calm some of the noise. And I'm sure both of you are familiar with this, where you like, you set your roadmap for the year, you plan all your cool projects you're going to tackle. And then all of a sudden there's a flurry of LinkedIn posts about like great resignations or reshuffles or whatever the R is, right? And then the quiet quitting and prior firing and then hybrid work doesn't work. You can't fill the culture. It creates in-groups, out-groups. And so then we have to like go all address all these trends and, your leaders see all these trends and our job as people analytics experts is to calm down all the spinning, um, all of the like, and, and have like a response to some of the external chatter using data, using the voice of our team members. And so we've been having what's a blast. It like, what's a myth that you've busted, Stephanie? Yeah. Just out of curiosity. Curious. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So we've been having so much fun with this. <laughs> and so we've been using just like, so one is hybrid workplace. So um, of course, many with hybrid workplace, one is that there's no, that there's differences between those that'll be in the office and those that'll be fully remote. Um, we found that in our hybrid workplace, there are no meaningful differences between promotion, between performance with our remote workers versus our office-based one. Um, another one is new team members won't feel like included. They won't feel the culture and they're at greater risk of attrition because they're not able to connect. We find our team members that are new feel just as included as those that have been at the company before the pandemic and they're at no greater risk for attrition. And then the last one has been really cool is about culture. A lot of people feel like you won't feel the culture if you're not in an office and around the people. And our team members tell us that our, they're 94% believe that they see our culture and that our values and uh, our culture are top differentiators for our company. Um, so all the things that we see popping up as concerns for hybrid work and, and our data and the voices of our team members are really saying it's not the case at all. I, I think the new employee aspect is really, really interesting because like when a new employee comes on, uh, they automatically need to be acculturated into the system. And I, I think that we've also, as a group, as a society, as a workforce, whatever you want to call it, have essentially matured over the course of the pandemic as well. Because <clears throat> like in March 2020, it was all new and like, oh, how do I install Zoom on my computer? And like, maybe I've done it before, maybe I haven't. Now we've been doing it for two plus years and like everyone's just kind of accustomed to it at this point. So I, I think we've essentially adapted or become more adaptable to a hybrid environment and have worked out ways to perform more effectively. So in moving forward, we're going to see it be easier and easier to have a remote workforce. Well, and let me, let me point out something here too, Stephanie. I, I know this is just conjecture and it's not science, um, but I'm curious if Dell hadn't been on kind of the hybrid and remote work journey prior to the pandemic, do you think that some of those myths that you busted would have not been busted? Um, because that, that's a hypothesis that I have is had there been, you know, an alternative Dell, like a counterfactual Dell, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't you know, do everything that you guys have done, Maybe there would be differences in promotional rates, and maybe they, maybe people who onboarded would feel differently. I don't know. What, what's your perspective on that? It's a great question. I would like to think, of course, that our culture would enable it to not have been much different than it is. Um, but I think that, that, to your point, I think we would have gotten there. It might have taken more time to get there. I mm -hmm. think everyone's along the journey right now, and I think a lot of companies are struggling with adjusting. I think we were able to hop right on a lot faster than other companies were with the hybrid work. Um, but I think we would have eventually got there. Mm -hmm. There's some like really good, uh, interesting uh, articles around this sort of aspect. It essentially shows that it takes about 15 interactions to develop the same level of trust remotely as it does one in-person interaction, which, you know, mm -hmm. trust is, you know, um, kind of the name of the game as far as like transferring information between folks and getting people to uptake, et cetera. And thank I, God I, we're 15 episodes in Scott. I've, you know? I still don't trust you. <laughs> like I'm working on it. <laughs> or, or I have the same minuscule level of trust I did after our first meetings. <laughs> yeah. You just had a low base rate. You're going up incrementally from there. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, but like I, I don't know where this is going. I find it endlessly fascinating, especially what people are saying all over uh, the world about this uh, remote aspect. And like you're in like such a great position, Stephanie, to uh, see all this employee engagement data. Yeah, I've even noticed it since we started the podcast. Like in our first few episodes, like the culture has shifted since then. Because we're so? like, yeah, like I went back and I listened to one the other day. And it was we were we were talking about it kind of from the premise that, you know, hybrid work is going to be a fad and most people are just going to go remote forever. And that was like totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, that's that's how much it shifted. I think we're 18, 19 episodes in. We do one a week. That's what's happened in 19 weeks. That's crazy. I mean, the world is shifting every day. Imagine what it's going to look like 19 weeks from now. I'm going to have a full beard, long hair. <laughs> Stephanie's going to come on again yeah. and school us that we were wrong this entire time. <laughs> yes, busted. It'll be interesting to see. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing that I've kind of noticed is this connection, right? Like, I think, I, I think there's so many people that are just wanting connection and wanting to be, like, feel more connected to each other. And I think that means so many different things to different people. And even when I look at our data, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that I don't have a relationship with my direct team. Like I talk to my direct team all the time. We are, we feel like we know each other. Like it's, we haven't missed the beat by not being in person. We don't feel like, but in terms of like those like water cooler conversations of yeah. like people that I don't connect with that on a regular basis that I would used to just bump into in the office. Like that part is the part that I think I miss the most of just being able to like, oh, hey, and catch up with someone walking down to the cafeteria. Yeah, I, I saw a post from uh, Adam Grant the other day, essentially said that uh, 84% of employees would come to the office more if it did have a social component to it, uh, or mm-hmm. there's some sort of social interaction, which, you know, if you come to the office and like no one shows up, like, why the heck would you be there in the first place? I, I don't know where he got his data. And I'm just like, kind of a... Uh, parroting back but like we've the, the, the science has been in for a little while like alex pentland showed that people, people can be really productive in small groups due to um the large dense connections that exist between them it's really about those like you said stephanie those water cooler conversations and getting to know people outside your group that is the real advantage coming to the office that you it's so hard so hard to recreate online. Mic drop. Mic dropper. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. Totally agree. <laughs> well, well, maybe we can pivot here, Stephanie, because one of the things that I, I've noticed about you is every time we talk, I find out something new that you're doing that I had no idea what was going on. And so I was wondering, maybe could you talk about, you know, ways that you're giving back to the community in people analytics or just any kind of the extracurriculars that you're engaging in that would be interesting for our audience to know? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what I've been doing lately is just sharing what I learn as I learn it. <laughs> I think, like I mentioned before, I just kind of like in the last couple of years realized that, you know, what we do is actually, you know, people analytics, not just because we don't create dashboards. So being able to like starting to join in to the people in those conversations a little bit more has been really great for me. And I think, you know, sharing what I learned as I've been learning it has been key, whether it be through conferences, podcasts like this one, mentoring, articles, or just simply connecting with other people analytics experts. It's such a fast 
growing field and I feel like it's only going to continue to grow and we're all on different parts of the journey. So whether I'm reaching forward to learn from those further on the journey or reaching back to kind of teach those coming up behind me, I feel like we're all in this together and the more we can share our thoughts and perspectives, the better. You're so intelligent and have so much to share. Like, dang, I need you as my mentor. <laughs> you take a mentor? <laughs> I feel Mentees. like you just won the no, Nobel no Peace Prize with that speech. <laughs> Everyone yeah. but you, Seth. Well, do you want to join us in the nerdery, Stephanie? Of course. Hop on cool. in. Hop on in. I don't know. What do, you, what do you want to talk about first, Scott? Oh, I got something. I got something. I knew so, you would. Stephanie, do you know who you're talking to? This Nerd. is Cole Napper. <laughs> alumni of the year whether we 2022 young alumni of the year what? look at him they're, they're so scott just shared a link for the listeners <laughs> and um i because yes. you just dis- say you disabled screen sharing so i can't do this oh i did do that that I was accidental <laughs> people are paying i'll put it this way people are paying 40 dollars a plate just to go listen to cold talk this is what's happening here I had not seen this. This is so cool. Congrats, sir. Congrats. Well, thank you. So yeah. for, for those who are listening, so I, I got nominated and won the Young Alumni of the Year for Louisiana Tech University. It's pretty pretty big honor, and I'm I'm very, very, you know, just humbled by it. And <laughs> and then I also, you know, joined Orgnostic this week. And so I've got like good news all around. I'm gonna start traveling more. Um, so it's just kind of a wild time in my life, to be honest. That is wild. Do you, do you want to talk more about your, your yeah. new job at Orgnostic? I mean, like, I know we had, we were scheduled to talk about that, but you got yeah, else well, we can talk that? more about it in our next Cole and Scott episode. But one thing I will say is, you know, I'm going to that event down in Austin and I'll also probably be up in Boston and Chicago in the next month or so for different meetup events. So it should be pretty interesting, uh, just getting around the country, doing a little bit more travel. The number one tip I can give to someone that travels a lot is to get one of those like uh, exclusive airport lounge tickets. Like it's only like four hundred dollars a year. Totally worth it. They have the riffraff. (laughs) Duly noted. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Well, so so that was kind of um, kind of unplanned. Unplanned. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't. I did not know you were going to do that, Scott. (laughs) Uh, I. I, I'm starting to regret that I shared that with you yesterday. As as you should, uh, as you should. But I you know, thought... ba- back back to like this is a good continuation of our discussion on uh, hybrid arrangements. So I dropped a link here, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well. But uh, this group has divided the country into a bunch of different regions. Um, all within a two or three hour commuting distance from like a central hub. So as opposed to saying like, you know, everyone is fully remote, everyone, you know, must live or, you know, come into the office every day. This is essentially saying just kind of live in this general area. If you got to be into the office, then, you know, three hours, three, four hours notice, at least we can get you there. We can like uh, uh, iterate pretty quickly. It's a really interesting solution, uh, one that uh, I don't think a lot of people have really considered just yet. I mean, some of these are just ridiculous and preposterous, though. 
like the, it covers the whole state of Louisiana and most of Mississippi. And it says this is the New Orleans area. I'm like, no, that's not. That's like a five to six hour drive into work every day. Like, so, but you know, most of them are pretty good. So I got to give them that. Well, yeah, it there's, is there's a some... little realistic, though. I was talking to one of my colleagues in California that has to go in two days a week, and she drives almost five hours for those two days oh and then gosh. drives back home. Mm-hmm. No, no thank Rather you. than having to move. Yeah. yeah let's, let's not normalize that, please. You know, it is, it is really like some around these like smaller, pardon me, larger cities. It's, it's a smaller region. So like it could be a three hour drive in from New Jersey into New York city, but three hours from, I don't know, Ruston, Louisiana, Ruston to New Orleans rather. But I guess if you're Montana, you're just SOL. Cause like they don't even have a region there. That's just no man's yeah. land. They're basically saying yeah. there's Yellowstone and nothing else. <laughs> like, enjoy it. There, there'd be dragons out here. Yeah, I feel like that type of hybrid work is like false flexibility. It makes people think they have flexibility, but if you're still constrained to the space, constrained to an office space at least a couple of days, do you really have flexibility? Boy, that's a really interesting question. Like, how, how much? I, it's 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 a it's a spectrum, clearly, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be as much as um, leaving early on Fridays, leaving an hour early on a Friday to I come in whenever the heck I want. I mean, like, and companies are going to have to deal with this. Dell, Dell has taken an approach for a long time. <clears throat> Other companies are just trying to tackle it now. Yeah, I mean, I remember prior to the pandemic, some companies that I've worked for said they had, like, flexible work arrangements, and that meant you could go home at like 3 p.m. on Friday instead of 5 p.m. on Friday. And uh, like, I, I think, I think this, they don't know what the definition of this word flexible means, but. Or, you know. or just what you get to wear jeans on Fridays. Like remember these whole days, like, holy cow, man. Yeah. It's like some people didn't wear jeans for two full years after I, that. I, there's a big swath of the uh, workforce too that you know that they, they have to come in in some capacity that you know they just they can't get around but there, there's other groups that i think traditionally managers have thought that no that they, they shouldn't or that they're unmanageable from a remote perspective i'm thinking like call center workers these sort of like lower level like in fact the lower you go on the like organization the more performance metrics surround these people which is seemingly unfair really Oh my god. It I'm gonna go on a whole tangent here for a second. Please have you guys ever done like a ride along with a call center worker? No. That is the most stressful job. Like maybe those people that catch like Alaskan crabs or something have a slightly more stressful job, but <laughs> like like I, I did like one of these things where I was on the phone for like fifteen minutes just shadowing them and I was about to have like a panic attack at the end. I'm like, you do this for eight hours a day? I mean they like it's it's immediate so you, you get on a call somebody starts yelling at you like right away right. you have to go through like all these like internal systems on your computer screen you know like when you're on the phone with somebody and then they say oh i have to pull this up really quick or you know oh this is loading you have to go through all those systems while the person just hates you they just hate you the whole time <laughs> and then the second that the phone call ends the phone picks up again with another person there is oh. no break and there is no like decompression zone. I was like, this is the hardest job. Again, you know, 
I'm not a military job, not an Alaskan crab fisherman or something, but it is such like from an emotional labor standpoint, I, I don't know why these people like don't get paid more. My, my sister worked at a call center and uh, she was telling me she got this new job at a, like a different at a, at a bank, essentially. And, you know, she was so excited about she was ex- so excited because they allowed her to have her cell phone on the desk with her. Like if the lax job, they wouldn't even let her. It, 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 yeah, that, that would get written up or, you know, w- whatever happened. I was like, oh, my God, this is just that's no way to live. No wonder, no wonder, like 75% of people hate their job. That's directionally correct. That's not an actual figure. (laughs) Well, and that's talk about like a weird non monetary benefit that's a differentiator, you know, for a position. Hygiene factors. Removing the humanity from it. I will say, I did do a police ride along in New Orleans when uh, I was helping developing the uh, recruitment exam. And at one point, I just told the cop, like, I'm getting out because this is freaking crazy like i'm i'm out of here please <laughs> essentially he parked us in the middle of a riot he parked us in the middle of a riot and people are like banging on the cars like okay i gotta get i'm done i don't need this anymore in my life a normal thursday in new orleans <laughs> <laughs> stephanie you're from new orleans aren't you yeah right outside in the class so you you know you know what that's all about um well so i Usually we do like a a gossipy segment and the segment I have today is about this article. And for, I I don't, I don't get it. I I honestly do not get why this is such a controversial article. The title of it is, and we'll put in the show notes, the scientific value of numerical measures of human feelings. Right. And so these articles, I believe they're economists, these economists, I guess it felt like they needed to figure out something that psychologists have known for like a hundred years, which is that you can measure people's feelings using numerical and integer scales. And that's like a valid way of researching people's attitudes and feelings about things. And apparently in the field of economics, this is extremely controversial finding. And these people are getting shit on so much for publishing this article (laughs) and I, you know, Scott, you sent me something on Twitter, this this professor at, um, I think it's Iowa State University, and he pulled up the original, like, Thurstone article that attitudes can be measured. It's from, like, 1920 <laughs> or something like that. And so I, I honestly don't understand why this is a controversial topic. Can you educate me, Scott, please? Oh, no, I, I, I cannot add uh, much more than what you said, other than, like, these economists have figured out that uh, you can measure attitudes, which... Heck, Stephanie's been doing this for a long time. Water is wet. Well, Water is wet. Headline. Though? Who's, like, what's the rebuttal of that? Are people feeling like you shouldn't measure attitudes or what? Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm probably not, I'm probably straw manning what they're saying here and forgive me for that. But I think they're basically saying that, you know, human emotions and feelings are so volatile and not reliable and valid from a scientific standpoint, which again, the article rebuts and psychology has rebutted for again, a hundred years, but that they're so unreliable and unknowable that you can't model them effectively out into the future and use it for reliable predictions, which again, I disagree with, but I'm probably straw manning this to a certain extent. Yeah, Dr. Likert probably has some thoughts on this back in the day. I, th- I think there's like a broader conversation to be had where 
Economists in IOs don't really interact. And there, there's things that each group can learn from one another. And uh, I don't know how much more I got to say about this other than we should, we should do a better job of examining each other's field and looking at their practices because there's a lot of things that we do that they do better. And there's a lot of things that uh, they do that we do better. And we could form a happy union to better predict uh, employee outcomes, make the world a better place. A little rainbow at the end of that. Thank for no you for reason. That. <laughs> uh, yeah. that was very roses and butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Stephanie, have you had any interaction with economists or e economics data in your career at all? No, not really. I mean, we recently just published an article on the World Economic Forum about hybrid work, and it was talked about on Mythbusters, and they were very happy with it. So that's about the closest I have. Well, first of all, you should have mentioned that earlier when I was talking about you giving back to the people analytics community. <laughs> but second of all, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's really neat. Yeah, I don't know. Like my experience, I actually have really positive connotation with um, economists because I kind of got started in people analytics and workforce planning and workforce planning. Essentially, when you break it down to its core elements is all supply and demand. And that's essentially economics right there. So I have kind of got like a school of hard knocks, master's degree in economics. And so I have a lot of respect for it. But then I, I read stuff like this. I'm like, who are these? You know. <laughs> <laughs> like codgers that just don't <laughs> get with the times i don't know from from, from like an out, outsider's perspective i, I would just kind of like generally characterize economists as kind of like uh uh cold only by the numbers uh only the results really matter sort of folks like by any means necessary whereas ios bring in a lot of theory and perhaps some like softer side of the uh, well quite clearly quite clearly like the human psyche which economists would largely dismiss. So it makes sense that an article like this would come out. It's like, oh, by the way, like uh, humans do have uh, attitudes that are predictive. And the whole basis of the field of behavioral economics was actually founded by a psychologist. But, you know, I'm, that's, my, <laughs> my, that's my mic drop moment for the day. Um, well, la last part of the nerdery is I came across this article uh, by Dr. John Sullivan. We've talked about a few of his articles on the podcast early on, and it, it's called The Most Powerful Recruiting Tool That No One Uses, An Internal Story Inventory. And it's actually a pretty good article, so I don't want to like poo-poo on it too much, but he really brings up this concept of storytelling with data. And that's been like a super hot topic in people analytics over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And I have a bone to pick with this. Um, not that I don't like a good story, because it, it's just I've seen and I always hear it repeated back to me from like a less sophisticated person from a scientific standpoint, like a HR business partner. It's like this data needs to really tell a story. Cole. Yeah. And what I haven't heard someone <laughs> say is data often doesn't actually tell a story. And if you're telling a story with it, you're lying. And so I want, I want to hear that from you guys, because like a story has a narrative arc. It has a, a it has closure at the end. It's usually not very messy. And all of those things are not true. Usually when you're analyzing data about human beings and probably why the economists don't like analyzing data on 
human beings and their emotions because it's very messy and it doesn't necessarily <laughs> feel scientific all of the time. So I, my viewpoint is if you have too clear and concise of a story, you're either making lies of omission or lies of commission with the data. Uh, react, because I have not shared this with Scott or you, Stephanie, before. I'm curious if you have any reactions to this. I would definitely say that's a, a controversial opinion, which <laughs> doesn't surprise me from you, Cole. Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by a story. Because I think what I often do is I try, I let the data tell me a story versus crafting a story to fit the data, if that makes sense. And so if I'm like that's diving That's a really in interesting yeah. distinction. And that, that actually is the part that frustrates me about the audience is they're not saying let the data tell a story because I actually agree with that. That's a, that's a, that's a really good distinction, Stephanie. They're saying, tell me a story. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think that's very, I mean, that may seem very subtle, but that's a, in practice, a huge delta between those two things. And one's like saying, lie to me with this data, please. <laughs> and the other one is saying, Here's kind of the key things that emerged from the data once I, you know, try without trying to, I tortured it. it it's I'm sure both of you have had these experiences, too, but it's like it's really freaking magical when you're looking at data and like it pops out to you, like what's going on? Like, oh, wow. Like I can, I can clearly tell like how this group is behaving and why. Um. But it, is, it also relates back to like our discussion about economists. Like a, a lot of what we do in IO, it, basically because we're using like human data, has like uh, low correlations or low effect sizes, uh, where economists don't really want to deal with this sort of thing. To the point where you do have these situations where, uh, like, look at the, all those like bad data viz examples. Like, oh, they truncated the left hand side of the chart, so it's like a difference between. Uh, males score 67%, women score 64%. Like, but you know, the, the differences look so huge on the PowerPoint or whatever. It's, it's like huge. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no, they're about the same, really, you know. But uh, that gets in the way of a good story, you know. Yeah, don't let facts get in the way of a good story, right? I don't know. I feel like I, I've walked myself out onto a limb. I've almost cut off the branch behind me, but I, it hasn't quite <laughs> fallen yet. And so I'm just hanging on for dear life right now. But I, I think what you really want to do... I think it's do, a fair point, though. Ahead, it's, it's totally a fair point. Because uh, you need to convey some sort of meaning in the data. Because like if you go to an executive, like, we collected all this uh, data, and they say, like, well, what does it mean? And you just like, like, eh. Like, I don't know, just, just, random, I think it's an overcorrection, you know, um, and maybe I'm not going to go this route. Let's see if this plays out, Scott, <laughs> you can cut this part out if it doesn't, <laughs> but you remember, we almost called the, the podcast, the horseshoe effect. I oh, think God. this is an, an, another example of the horseshoe effect. We found out that the horseshoe effect means something totally different than what I thought it was. And that's why we didn't call it the horseshoe effect, but it's basically when you give someone advice, you start in one place. And then as you advance, you go up to the top of the horseshoe and then you work your way down the other side, but you don't actually end up back where you, where you started. It's not a full circle. And so essentially, like if you're a new data analyst, it's saying, hey, don't just like generate a thousand different charts with the data and just hand it to somebody and say, here's your data, you deal with it, right? That's really bad. So that's the start. 
But then as you, and so you, the, the feedback that you get is tell a story with the data, right? Find meaningful themes within it. And that's really, really good advice, right? So you work your way up to the top of it. So it's like being more, you know, resourceful with the data. But I'd say as you get more and more sophisticated, you realize that like, oh, now I'm being asked by this stakeholder to kind of make the data say something that is not really saying anymore, just to fit the narrative or the story that they already wanted to tell. And oh, you come God. back down the other side and you're like, oh, maybe I actually need to stick back with the data and what the data is really saying, not go with whatever the flow is of that day for the leaders that I'm supporting. I don't know. I, if that worked, hopefully it worked. I no, it, it makes total sense. And like, it, it's, it's a topic conversation <clears throat> for people and like professionals because like every so often uh, you get put into a position or at least it's happened to me in the past. I'll just put it that way where like, Someone high up has a theory and they essentially want it confirmed. They want some sort of confirmatory analyses. And so you already have a big mm, head start on the way the data should look. Right. It's, okay. We're going to cut That should's out. doing a lot of heavy <laughs> lifting there, by the way. Yeah. You know? Because you're like, oh, any any things that are disconfirmatory, I'm just going to put those in the recycling bin. You know, and, and that's not science. I have I have like really fundamental issues with this. It's like you science is science and you know, confirmatory is confirmatory, but those two things can't play together. Right. Because one is essentially, you know, like null hypothesis testing and all of that is essentially a falsifiable mechanism. Uh -huh. Where if you say this is the capital T truth and there is no other truth, then you're just you're you're basically making like a religious type claim. Well, people like analysts or researchers or what whatever you want to say, like should also be decoupled. That their performance should be decoupled from what the data results say as well. And I think a lot of times, like, well, this person found a great result, yay yeah. for them. It's like no. Tell That's... that to all the medieval messengers whose heads were cut off by the king <laughs> exactly. for delivering a message that the king didn't like. <laughs> so, you know, I think this is a pretty old story. You hey, ever stories. Well, it makes me wonder yeah, if, like, is your, your issue with the storytelling or is it more data integrity? Because I, mean, I, I could send a data point to someone because they want it to be confirmed. Doesn't mean I have to tell us story with it it's just confirming their data so i wonder if your issue is more so just with like data integrity versus the storytelling piece uh it's more of like in it and we talked about this way back with chris castile um with kind of the open science movement of i, I and i've written about this in a few of my articles i try to get people to do two things before i engage in a research project first of all I get them to kind of pre-specify their hypotheses, meaning the things that they expect to find, and then bracket out what they'll do if we find it and what they'll do if we don't find it, right? right. And so it's getting kind of pre-committal in, in, in the open science movement, this would be called like pre-registration, but it's like pre-committal beforehand so that if we do find disconfirming findings, that they actually, they're on the hook still to do something differently rather than them just moving the field goal post once the results are out there and just saying, well, actually, I didn't mean that. I meant this. It's like, no, 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 no. Let me, let's, let's go back. Let's, let's find uh, what you said originally. And then this is what you said you would do if we found this fine. 
or just or just drop the analysis altogether. It's like, oh, I didn't find what I wanted. Okay, we're just not. Gonna... Yeah. Now it's no longer important. Yeah. Well, that's my tangent for the day. We'll cut all Thank that you. out. Let's <laughs> cut <laughs> this whole section out, please. Uh, would you want to go on another quick tangent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do <laughs> if it. If you're down for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, because uh, now that we're going to cut that other one out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's way more funny than it should be. Um, <laughs> uh, you said something earlier, Scott. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it triggered me thinking about something, which is another riff I have about pre-hire selection and correlation indexes. So, like, if you've ever worked in the selection space, psychologists, like any kind of vendor will come and tell you, you know, 0.3, 0.35 is like the maximum correlation that you can have to future job performance. And I've gone back to vendors and they just like laugh at me or they give me a blank stare. I'm like, I bet you we could do better. I bet you we could go higher than 0.3 or 0.35. If, I mean, and then the, then the debate comes down to is like, how creepy do you want to get to get above that? Right. But if they're, cause they just want to go back to like things like, IQ and conscientiousness and you know maybe a little bit of bio data or something like that. Yeah. And then they're like, see, we get you to 0.3, 0.3, 0.35. And I'm like, if that's the case, then and every tool in the market gets you to 0.3, then it's a completely commoditized market. And I should just go with the cheapest vendor because it's a commodity now. But the and so I, I guess from your experiences, do you think it's possible to get above 0.35 correlation to performance in a selection contact? Um, I'll let Stephanie answer this. <laughs> like, Cole, shut up now. We will cut this part out. <laughs> no, I, 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 I got ideas. I want to hear Stephanie answer today here. I don't know. I think it's possible. So, though we don't use selection assessments except for executives, so I haven't really played around a lot with it. We're actually just in the process of developing one now and haven't tested it out. So, I'd be interested to learn if it's possible because we're about to get to that phase, but I don't have any insights of it as of now. So, like, I, I could have sworn, and I, I could be totally wrong, that like uh, in the Schmidt and 198 article, they were posting validity coefficients of IQ plus other selection instruments. So, personality graphology biodata you know you name it uh and they were getting like 0. 0.45 0.48 um this is all you know, yeah i, I know about. but that that was all corrected for like range restrictions so yes. they did some some funkiness i'm talking about like base i'm not like r squares <clears throat> like just r's um and the other thing and and by the way this is a, again another tangent uh but it is related to what you just said is that it Schmidt and Hunter have revised that article like twice. And then more recently this year, Paul Sackett came out with a criticism of that article. Cause that's like one of the biggest articles in the history of psychology, right. IO psychology. And they basically said that Schmidt and Hunter did everything wrong and IQ isn't the best predictor of anything, which I was like, wow, that's, I'm surprised we haven't talked about that on the podcast already, honestly. But um, so there's a lot of like kind of controversy going on about that article in itself. So if you have like a bloody coefficient of, Point three. What is, what is that? Uh, uh, like point five five r squared. Like like it's point oh, it zero five. Opposite direction. Point zero five r squared. So like, yeah, you're increasing in uh, predictability is like pretty minuscule. So like, yeah, to your point, yeah, go with the cheapest one that's like getting you the 
even like 0.28 <laughs> like you're not gaining that much at that point yeah i don't know i just, i feel like there's more and better and and like so this is my plea to anybody who's you know wanting to create their next startup or something like that is go out and figure this out and you can take the whole market by storm because people have set an artificial ceiling to what predictive uh, capacity could look like in a selection or a development context for that matter go and do this all right this is I'm, it, it's for the taking i might say that legal might have a, a say in this as well they may have a take oh sure i mean it depends on how you go about doing it like are you going out and you know like stealing people's social security numbers or something or are you doing it in a more above above board way of doing it but anyway i think this is the biggest tangent we've ever gone on i love <laughs> it we we may cut all of this out stephanie but thank you so much for joining us today um I, like scott i'll kick it to you and then stephanie i'll give you the final word yeah, absolutely. Stephanie, it's so good to see you again. Always love talking to you. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they get in contact? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably best. I answer every message that comes my way as long as it's not a marketing marketing fly. Stephanie, you, you are such an impressive person. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been the Directionally Correct podcast with Colin Scott and Stephanie Murphy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. I appreciate you having me. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.